I'd like to begin this evening's reflection with a a story from my early life. And just to contextualize, we're in the time in the retreat where we've gone deep enough, opened enough inner gateways as it were, so often there's a richness that comes through. Tough stuff as well as joy. So when I was about six, my mother left. It was a time in the 70s. It seemed like everybody was doing that. Late 60s. And I stayed with my dad. Uh, and I visited my mom sometimes, but I was, I was raised by my dad and then a stepmom and I had siblings, etc. And I'd get a little uh, pissed off because I didn't get, well, I didn't have my mommy around anymore. I didn't have that object of steadiness, of love on the outside. So my dad, who was a fair man, uh, stern but fair, he would send me to this thing called a funk chair. And whenever know what a, you know what a funk chair is? I think it might be called a timeout chair now or something. <laughs> Some more modern language on it. So when I get a little, I'd get uh, frustrated, get angry, I'd get in a downward spiral because I, I, I didn't know what to do, right? I didn't, I didn't get my needs met. I wasn't being loved the same way. So he sent me to my funk chair and I'd sit there. This is a black leather chair in the corner of the room where we watch TV. I remember it very well. <laughs> I didn't like it very much. But then after a while, something changed. When I went to my funk chair, I started to actually get calm. Because the assignment was I'd go there until I was able to be okay again, right? And not act out in relation to the family. So I'd come out and I'd be calm and things would be better. So what's the point of this story? Well, I learned some things then through that example in that time. I learned very much that a lot of our suffering is relational, comes from relationship. So I bet that a lot of what we're dealing with in terms of the tough stuff, in terms of uh, what Rebecca was talking about with the hindrances, with not wanting and wanting and all these mixed up energies. And the teachings are often put in a very simplified form of just wanting and not wanting and then not seeing clearly. That our mind gets mixed up in those. And a lot of those triggers are in relationship, whether they're in front of us or whether they're inside. Memories that are triggered, etc. So I learned that a lot of suffering is to do with relationship, very simple. And I also learned that I could go inside and start to touch a place that was more reliable. So when I come out, I'd honestly be changed. That's actually where I first learned to meditate. So tonight I'd like to reflect on 
our path as one that is relational, relational to the moment, that is learning to take care of the moment, which is what we've been encouraged to do in so many ways here, through mindfulness, through kindness, through kind mindfulness. Taking care of the moment, taking care of the moment in all of the forms of relationship that it exists. Now, primarily, that's inside here, isn't it? But everything that we relate to inside and out is in the moment. So I'd like to work with a, a teaching tonight, one of my favorite suttas in the whole Buddhist teaching, because it points to the radical importance for ourselves and for all of life, for all the life that we touch, at least, it touches us, the importance of taking care of the moment, the importance of taking care of self, of parts of ourselves, of others. And so this is what's called the Bamboo Acrobat Sutta, or Sedaka Sutta. And it goes something like this. There was a senior acrobat and his assistant. They were bamboo acrobats. So they go around from town to town and she would climb up on his shoulders. They would go up a pole, they would do an act, they'd come down and they'd get paid. And they had a little question about what was the best way to do this. So she said, and her name was Meda, Meda Kalika. So Meda said, senior acrobat, here's the best way to do it. You take care of yourself. I'll take care of myself. And together we'll go up, we'll do our act, we'll come down, we'll get paid, and we'll move on. And the senior acrobat said to Meda, no, 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 no. You got it backwards. I'll take care of you. You take care of me. And by doing so, this is the best way for us to do our work together, our act, and to move on. So who was right? Just, I don't want to take you out of your stillness. I want you to raise a pinky, maybe. Who thinks that taking care of yourself first is right? Well, yeah, and who thinks taking care of others? Okay, good. Most people said, sort of said, taking care of self, which is wonderful. That's the priority, isn't it, right now? So I don't know what the Buddha was doing nearby a traveling circus, <laughs> uh, but somehow he was just around the neighborhood, and they had this beam of wisdom, so they decided to go clarify the problem. So they went to the Buddha, and they said, who's right? And the Buddha said, just like the assistant Meda said to the senior acrobat, I will look after myself. So you should, practitioners, monks, but that means all meditators, you should practice the establishment of mindfulness. So she was right, huh? You take care of yourself. Oh, there's another line. You should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, 
I will look after others. So he was right. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. Isn't that interesting? So in a very simple way here on retreat, we create the container where this is true, isn't it? We create the container where when we take care of self on the daily life of retreat, we're being mindful inward. And this supports the container, doesn't it? Very simply. But when we are respectful of others, sensitive, open, then that helps us take care of the moment as well, doesn't it? So in the daily life of the retreat, we support the containers. Now, there's a deeper metaphor in this teaching, and that's where I'm going to be spending most of my time here, which is that other can be literally other. Right? So uh, when, I was, when I took care of myself, when I discovered that little ability to do that when I was a kid, six, seven, eight years old, uh, then naturally when I came out and I was in a different place, I naturally took care of others, didn't I? Something I learned, I could make others, I could make harmony around me too, if I took care of myself. And so we learn that. But the deeper metaphor for the retreat, or the metaphor, is that others are not just, not just others in terms of the container, the form, but they're the qualities within inside ourselves that feel like other, which are a lot of things, aren't they? So to go back to the first night when Chaz was reflecting on the, the refuges, we took refuge in the Buddha as the quality of, well, I'll use my term, my words now, but the quality of unshakable awareness in the present, a place more like our true home, right? Not dependent on outer conditions. And so that's like taking, in the metaphor, that's like taking care of, of self. That's taking care of the sense of being right here inside. And taking care of other is taking care of all those things which actually feel like they're not our awareness. They're not this true, this true inner refuge of being free and clear and simple. Now, how do we take care of self and other? How does one look after, look after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing it a lot. Okay? And how does one look, af- one look after oneself? By looking after others. So how do we take care of others? And that loop comes back to ourself by practicing patience, 
by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. So we'll come back to that. You can already see the connection, can't you? Let's look again at the, the path of the Buddha's teachings. Well, uh, revisit what we're doing here again. Well, another thing I learned in my little funk chair experience was that uh, you can turn a bad situation into a good one. And in a certain way, that's what we're being asked to do. When, if we come to practice, because something's off, because the way we're living life isn't quite working, that we are, we say, this isn't a great situation in terms of my inner happiness, right? This has been reflected on in the hall quite extensively. So the Buddha was said, was someone who took could take a bad situation and turn it into a good one. That actually being with those parts of ourselves that are difficult, split off, suffering, that we could actually move to a different relationship to a deeper level to find our true home, to find a place of unshakable awareness. And the path is one where we move from not seeing clearly. And this was the second of the refuges was the sense of Dhamma, which is to be with things as they are. So seeing things in their pristine clarity, that when we do that, that's the gateway to inner freedom. And we don't do that. And we get mixed up when our mind sees things. It looks at things and it thinks it can get something out of objects which it can't in terms of inner happiness, which Rebecca reflect on very nicely, then we suffer. So in one way, the Buddha talked of like this movement from suffering. He actually said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. Sounds very nice, doesn't it? Actually, I don't understand that because if you say you teach one thing only and then you say suffering and the end of suffering, that's two things. But it's actually one movement. It's the movement to freedom. And the movement is always in the present. It's always in our relationship to the present, how it unfolds. So there is suffering in life, right? There are things we get, we don't, we get separated from what we don't like. We get stuck. <clears throat> We get separated. Well, actually, that's not suffering at all. That's good when we get separated from that which we don't like. We get separated from that which we like. We get stuck with that which we don't like. Our bodies don't cooperate. They get old. Er, for you. <laughs> get injuries. They get sick. And, well, we all know what the, the end is, right? We all die. And it's actually a good thing because if we didn't all die, this Planets sort of overpopulated enough. Um, but these are ine there's inevitable things that happen in our life physically and mentally and emotionally just as being humans that are unavoidable. But there's a whole level that isn't comfortable where there's suffering. 
But there's a whole level which is what's considered optional. So in terms of physical pain, the Buddha uses the analogy of the two arrows, which means that we get something happens. Because discussing in, in the, a group today, somebody who is, hope they don't mind me sharing, had an injury. And it was impacting their emotions a lot. Or I came here, a few days before I came here, I, I hurt my back. And so uh, my mind didn't just leave that alone and just deal with it the best it could a lot of the time. It would spin out about it. it. Oh, no, I can't, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that. One of my good friends is going on a long backpacking trip soon. <laughs> and uh, my mind isn't, oh, okay, I'll just work with my condition. He'll work with his. <clears throat> uh, I get a little... Jealous. <laughs> Do you know what sympathetic joy is? <laughs> that occasionally breaks through, but not that much. <laughs> and so that's a whole world of difference than just saying, oh, my back's hurt, I've got to deal with this. Right? It goes into comparing mind. It goes into wanting mind. It goes into wanting to be different mind. All these energies get evoked. And so the Buddha said this kind of suffering is actually optional. So there's one arrow that happens to us, these inevitable things in life, and it's in terms of physical pain, but we can use it as a, analogous to all of the, the pain that we have as being humans. And then there's something extra that we do because of our inner reactivity. Um, it's like, do you ever go to an ice cream place that has add-ons? or add, what are, they, are they mix-ins or add-ons? I don't know. You can get like sprinkles, that's an add-on. Or you can, go, you can get vanilla and you can get stuff mixed in. You get all these extra things, right? And it's no longer the ice cream that it was. It's no longer just pure vanilla. So that's what we do. We have these add-ons. We have these mix-ins all the time. What about just being with my pain and realizing, oh, there's some limitation here. Let me work with it. That would be too easy, wouldn't it? So another way that we suffer is, and I'm reflecting a lot of what we're hearing in groups, and I hear in my own mind, is the relationship between the way things are and the way they should be. Then we have this overlay, this ideal that we put onto experience thinking that it should be other than it is a lot of the time. And actually, we've given you a new way to suffer here. You're supposed to come here, and we're supposed to alleviate your suffering, right? Come here to leave it here. Insight leads to happiness. But we immediately, just because we open our mouths and we give teachings, there's ideals built into what you receive to be more mindful, to be more present, to let go, right? To be more kind. Do you feel the weight of these sometimes, these ideals? So when they become ideals, when they become something that we're trying to live through that idealization, they become a burden themselves. Now, they're not intended that way. And ideals can be very powerful and good. And that's what we're trying to do, make them inspiring so that we actually, because it takes work, right, to move, to, to work with the second arrow so that we don't get shot with all of our reactive patterns. And 
good ideals can help to motivate us to do what it takes to do that. But in and of themselves, if we hold on to them as ideal, suffering. Another example is uh, in relationship. We have idealized notions of who we'd like to be in relationship with at a certain level. And then we get in relationship. And have you ever noticed that you're kind of living in relation to that ideal some of the time? But guess what? The other person is too. And then guess what happens when reality sets in? Well, you got a deal, right? You have to deal. And that's just the way life is. And so this is what we do with our conditioned responses. This is what we do with our ideals. Our ideals, we impose. That's what we do. It's our conditioning. But how do we see through it? How do we work so that we actually, we have these, but then how do we use that? And then when they break down, when our ideals break down, how do we work with what's actually there? That's our challenge, isn't it? And work with it skillfully. Because life isn't always adver- as, as, as advertised, is it? It's not. We think something's going to be the way it is, and it's not. And that's what we have to deal with. So I went on this vacation some years ago to Costa Rica. I, I, don't, get, I don't get many vacations. And uh, so one of, the hi- one of the highlights was going to be doing this zip line thing, where you go, like you get up way, and, then, and I read in the that it's supposed to be this beautiful, they advertise this beautiful thing where you're way above the trees and all these layers of forest and you can see everything perfectly and it's like just an epiphany experience and all this. And then I read in the guidebook, it almost steered me away from it, it said it was, uh, it was like at 25 miles an hour bumpily going by uh, fuzzy looking broccoli heads. That's what the actual experience was. And guess what, they were right. <laughs> So I choose to believe in this ideal. We do that all the time. We're conditioned. But then, fortunately, I had enough, my, I had enough present moment awareness. So once, I, once the first one was disappointing, because I don't like watching whizzing by, uncomfortably watching whizzing by broccoli heads from my head <laughs> over and over again. It's not fun. But then once I shifted my perspective, I did it again. Once I shifted my perspective, okay, this is what it is. It was kind of fun. Who gets to like lie on their back and be like this, going through, whizzing along? It's kind of trippy. <laughs> so then it was okay. When I dropped my ideal, right, which just happened, and it's, it's this, and this isn't about practice right now. This is about an attitude piece, which is just that there's something very fresh and immediate when we unhitch, that's available to us. And that's kind of the last thing that I, that I, example I want to bring from the, the, the funk chair time, was that, and I outgrew it, by the way. <laughs> Except, actually, I still have to go to, well, maybe that's where my meditation cushion is now. When I'm suffering in a relationship, I still have to go there. But now I choose. I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that one. <laughs> You have to ask my partner. She'll probably say, yep, he goes there when he's feeling bad. She actually does say, go meditate now. It's true. (laughs) It's not my dad, but (laughs) she does. Okay. (laughs) But the last thing that I learned there was in a way that I had resources that I didn't know that I had. And that's such a valuable piece when we're on 
when we do this inner work, when we actually, when suffering, add-ons, things that color, so we can't be with things as they are, sometimes there's just a freshness that breaks through. It's, in, it's innate to who we are. If I didn't have that resource, right, it, I would never come out refreshed. It's in there. It's in all of us. And it's so close that we often can't see it. There's an image of uh, someone watching birds, like it's from the New Yorker a long time ago. Someone's up here looking for this very rare bird. And then the cartoon is the bird's walking right here. <laughs> right in front of them, back and forth. And they're like, where is it? Where is it? So where's awareness? Where's that freshness? Where's that like dropping? It's available right here, right now. And in a certain way, we actually don't have to do anything. That it pre, it's like preloaded on our computer. Just got to figure out how to get to it. But it's right here. So I want to read this quote, which I think is it's one of the most beautiful attitudinal pieces that, that for me, it's been very influential. It's part of a, a poem by Lama Gendun Rinpoche. It's, called, it's part of what's called a spontaneous Vajra song. He says, don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. Don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant. It's already resting quietly right here. We don't have to do anything, force. And it's not missing. So everything happens by itself. That means that the Dhamma, this refuge of things as they are, it's right here. Isn't that a relief? This is an invitation to relax into the moment. So in a certain way, all of us in our Dharma talks, we're all inviting us to touch kindness and mindfulness in different ways. So a relaxed attitude and a recognition that awareness is already present. When it happens, when we recognize it, we learn to rest. We learn to allow the fact that we're here and awareness is right here. We allow it to begin to work on us. It's a gentle, receptive skill. A Thai teacher, Buddha Dasa, said, wonderful Thai master, said, we get little moments every day that are like little nibbanas, just that are little bits of uh, going out of the flame of all these energies that are pushing and pulling, not seeing clearly. And that if we, don't, if we don't have little bits of this, and if we don't recognize, if they don't work on us, then uh, our mind would be so full of its own productions, its own conditioning, that it would actually drive us a little bonkers, if not a lot. So that it's this natural moments of awareness. And we're just cultivating that here, aren't we? the pauses, the recognitions that actually move us 
to sanity at deeper and deeper levels. I think it's so beautiful because it's just so natural. Okay. So when we take care of ourselves with mindfulness, that was a recognition, kind of recognition that was there, a realization that there are resources. It's natural. It's close at home. But then we also have to practice. It says taking care of self, practice mindfulness again and again and again. So on one level, mindfulness is this pure, clean awareness that doesn't push and pull. It's not judgmental. Just things are as they are. It's aware. But on another level, it's a remembrance to come back to those features of experience that we choose that strengthen the mind and the heart to be present. And once this gets cultivated again and again and again, then the mind settles down a bit. When it settles down, and then we start to see into things at a deeper level, just as they are, then what happens? Have you noticed sometimes little things that arise that you would put add-ons onto, that you would do something with? Your mind is more settled and curious, interested, and you don't. Sometimes you just don't. And then that experience becomes a gateway into the realization that what was formerly a bad situation is now a good situation. Because it shows us the truth, the lawfulness, the nature of experience moving. And we see things move again and again, and we don't try to color them and make them a certain way then what happens? What happens to everything? It arises, it displays itself. And what happens? And then it's gone. And it happens again and again and again. So our practice, when, when mindfulness is continuous or it has moments where it goes deeper and more steady and it's balanced, the mind slows down, it sees into experience it's called mindfulness concentration, and then it leads to clear seeing, which naturally lets go. Let's go the whole second arrow. So Ajahn Chah, the wonderful Thai master, said if you let go a little, you get a little piece. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, there's just peace, complete peace. It's beautiful, right? So we have to let it sink into our hearts. If it gets caught in our mind and we say, I have to let go then, becomes another ideal. And then what happens? Letting go becomes actually not letting go, but trying to get rid of something because we want it to go. So a lot, we're just creating the conditions and letting go happens by itself. I often say, uh, when people try to let go, are people here trying to let go of things sometimes? Yeah? I say, it's a little kitschy, but I say, don't try to let go, let flow. <laughs> because <laughs> well, when I was in high school, we uh, had a, a uh, high school yearbook. And for my senior year, there was a picture of me, like a kind of dorky picture trying to look all macho, but I had no muscles and I had a dorky, you know, like I had just, I was what I was. But, uh, <laughs> but underneath it, we had a little quote 
And my quote, I had a quote that said, how will life take its course if you will not let it flow? So I was deep and wise even back now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm still not. It's just a front. <laughs> but it's this movement of allowing. It's when that, and we just work with the causes and conditions. So we practice to take care of ourselves. We practice mindfulness a lot. Okay? And when it matures, and this is the inner metaphor, then actually the sense of we that's holding, that's pushing and pulling, it dissolves, and there's moments of real freedom. Okay? So taking care of self, we take care of others. Well, it's kind of natural. I can go back to the first, uh, I guess we'll visit the funk chair one last time. Uh, when I came out, of course, if I, when I'm in a different place inside, it just created harmony in the family. So I was back visiting my dad. Oh, well, he's 80 now. And I was back visiting him a while ago. And I said, Dad, I've been telling this story about my funk chair. I said, is it true? Because you know how memory is, right? He said, yes. And I said, and I said well, how'd it go? What was your experience? He said, it worked. And it worked in terms of the harmony in the family. So when we take care of ourselves, it's natural, right? And you get a sense of that. You get a sense of that when we're here, don't you? We can feel it. We're taking care of ourselves. We all take care of ourselves. And then naturally it creates an unspoken, but often a palpable feeling that we're holding the space for others too. Okay? So that's a, the whole wisdom path. In terms of our actual practice, if we're working to make it a little more simple, if we're, if we're working with our anchor, okay? So um, working with this metaphor of taking care of self, then we're taking care of that which helps us to be sta stabilized and being present. So that would be the breath, it would be our touch points, it would be a sense of, and we've expanded that, haven't we? To include food, hopefully we're doing it in our yogi jobs when we go to sleep. And it's not this, it's just that naturally, the more interested we are, then the, and the more we come back to what we've recognized that we can ground our attention in, then it helps, right? We get steady, there's a natural ripple effect. But now we're asked to taking care of others, others in ourself. So we have to take care of all those split off parts of ourselves. And something that's come up in the groups quite a bit, at least or somewhat in the group that I, uh, groups I've seen, is uh, a sense of really not worthiness at times in our practice. That there's certain parts of ourselves that really don't, we don't feel worthy of what's arising. It's clearly second arrow. But how do we work with that? It's, it takes an attitude shift in terms of we work with our mindfulness to start to include all the other aspects in a fuller way. So there was a monk, in the, a Western monk, who was in Australia. I he just heard the story. Um, and he was in this monastery where they were building the monastery, and he built this wall, brick wall, I guess. And he was a perfectionist. But he didn't get the wall quite right because he wasn't, a, he wasn't a you know, bricklayer or whatever. He didn't know how to do it very well. So people would come to the monastery and he'd show them around, and he would avoid showing people the wall because he's a little identified with it. Right? And so one day, someone, he was showing him around, and he, he's like, no, no, we don't want to look over there. And he said, no, no, show me it. Show it to me. Show me the whole thing. And so he showed him the wall, and there were some bricks out. And he said, oh, I did that, and he didn't feel good. And 
you know, that was not so good. And he said, oh, it's beautiful. He said, what? It's, it's not perfect. He said, no, that's why it's beautiful. Because it was a creation of the human mind and heart just the way it was. So he's affirming the way things are. So how do we do that with ourselves? How do we hold those parts of ourselves that are lonely, that are angry, that are fearful, that are split off? Well, one way is, one attitude that I think is really helpful is to have in our mindfulness not to be too rigid. And we've been learning to open, to really be more flexible in terms of how we work with grounding and steadying our attention, and then seeing into a bigger field so that we can actually let those places that we see, even be seeing them, how we see them, be invitations into moving to a deeper place. Right? Bad news becomes good news. But first we have to not be, we have to find out ways to settle our mind. So one can be, we have a small, like it's a little tiny corral. We come back to the breath a little, we just keep coming back to one place that works sometimes. But when we deal with all these other forces that are unwanted often, then we have to have, it's very helpful to have a bigger field in which to hold our awareness, our mindfulness. So it's called big pasture mind, right? Since we're talking about cows. There's a field nearby, and they, those cows have a big pasture. Did anyone go check them out? No one took, you took the pilgrimage, the cow pilgrimage, good. You saw them, they're just sitting there, right? Eating their grass. They've got a field, and do you think they'd be really happy if they were in a little small container? Like a little tiny, if they were inside and it was the summer? No, they want a, a bigger field to go, to go roam around. And the idea is that if we give ourselves a bigger field, like body, like more place in the body, right? Or even, even when, we, when we're being taking care of ourselves with skill, and we have to be skillful in this, and we're working with the form in a different way, we go into nature, right? We might skip a sitting every once in a while. We open our eyes. We, do, we vary the form. We're not so mechanical. But we do it in the service of holding these energies that are strong and that need to be attended to. They need our care and attention, right? So we want to bring them back into, what, into our field. So we give them a big field. So we give lots of room. And then, and then if we go out in nature, for example, or maybe our mind will settle down a little more in nature. We'll get interested in that. And it'll bring us back more to our home, more to the way things are, more to the moment. So I just love, in my own experience, I love practicing with big pasture mind. Now, we have a pasture near where I live. I live in uh, West Newbury, so it's up on the... Uh, near Newburyport in Massachusetts, or up in the, near the coast. And we don't, live in, we, don't, we don't have a farm. We have a house with some acres of land, and it's, it's very nice. And um, One day, and we have, we have all these bird feeders, and we have wild turkeys sometimes, and all these kind of birds coming through. We have two cats, and it's a nice sort of rustic home life. So one morning, I, I, I get up from bed. I come, I come out to the... Open, it's a very open view in the front. I come out and I look outside, expecting to see the birds. And then there's a reservoir. You can see a reservoir down, a hill sloping down to a reservoir. And what do I see? A whole bunch of cattle, cows, that had gotten away from someone's big pasture. They'd broken out. It wasn't enough to have big pasture mine for these cows. The grass is greener. 
even though we're working skillfully to give ourselves plenty of space to settle down, guess what? Often we're not happy with that, are we? We want what's outside of what we're allowed. We want to go and indulge in thought. We want to do this. We want That's the old mind. But guess what with the cows? Well, first I went out to try to greet them, and they saw me coming, like just like a thought does often when mindfulness comes. They took off right down to the reservoir, into the woods. They were gone like a shot. And I called up the farmer and I said, well, I said, do you know your cows are over here? And somehow they'd gotten, you have to cross a bridge and it's like a long journey to our place. <laughs> and they kind of dug up our lawn too. It wasn't too happy. But anyways, I, and he said, he said, can you get them? I said, are you kidding me? They saw one look at a human, they took off. So isn't that the way our mind is? It's very fickle, isn't it? Even though we have all these tools, we have all these ways to settle, we give it enough space. We're, there's, there's a lot of kindness. There's a lot of, a lot of ways that we can give ourselves a big pasture mind to settle down. Still, we don't want to chomp what's here. We want to go outside often. But you know what? I felt sad for these cows because they look so happy running off. But you know what? What happens when it gets cold? What happens when a storm comes? Do you think they'd be happier back in their pasture? Safe place? They got plenty of food? Okay, enough with that metaphor. (laughs) But it's actually true. We really equate freedom with outer freedom often. We really do. The freedom to do what we want when we want to, including hopefully coming on this retreat. But now that you're here, you know that we're working with constriction. We're working with limitation as a gateway to deeper freedom. Isn't it interesting? But we choose it because we realize the limitations of having a field that has no boundaries. Now, when awareness and wisdom are really ripe, when we see into things again and again, then we don't need any more boundaries. Because mindfulness is natural, like the poem from Gendon, Rinpoche said, it's natural, but we cultivate it. And so uh, one way we do it is we, we come back again and again and again, which we need to do. And it takes effort, and it's a little bit guarded. The middle ground is the open pasture. But when we start to see into things, we start to see into these split off parts of ourselves. And that's where we practice vipassana, seeing into, seeing into the nature of what arises, right? And letting go happens naturally. Then we can turn these energies. They can be the gateway into something that's much richer than if we never took the journey of working with them. So this is a, a very famous poem. I've actually never used it in a Dharma talk, but I've loved it. So now's my chance. It's um, <clears throat> called The Guest House by Rumi, translated by Coleman Barks. This being, this human being is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Treat each guest. When we're in awareness, we're the host. Each guest 
all these things we call others, honorably. That's our kindness. The guests may be clearing us out for some new delight, some new insight, some new deeper capacity to be with things as they are. And so when we care for other in this way, we care for self. When we bring kindness, patience, loving kindness, and it's through the quality of our awareness, and it can be through metta as well. When we bring it to these forces, then what happens? It transforms our relationship. In a very deep level, there's, there's no, it's not other and self, is it? But taking care of other in this way takes care of awareness. And the metaphor we're exploring. So, We care for those things that are other inside ourselves. And then there's just a natural, and then we do the work. So when we're not, for example, when we're not able to be with these different energies, we come back to our anchor, don't we? As much as we need to. So often taking care of others, we have an attitude that we're gonna take care of them, care. To do that, we actually, it becomes a loop. That to do that, in order to do that, we need to take care of awareness in the present. We need to be mindful of the breath, of our anchor. And so it pushes us back on ourself. Because we care, we do the work more fully. So that's the feedback. That's what the Buddha was talking about. It's a reciprocal relationship. And it happens in the world too. So, okay, fast forward 25 years from when I was young, my dad sitting in that chair, roughly 25 years, and I'd spent a lot of years in Asia. I've been a monk in Thailand. I've been in Japan for years, done a lot of Tibetan practice, mostly many years of, of insight practice in India and Burma and all this, Thailand, where I was ordained, et cetera, et cetera. And I came back and I was pretty much out of the, out of the loop. Like I get to watch my, my girlfriend, well, we're a little more than girlfriends, been together a long time, have a house and everything together. Um, she gets to show me all these old movies because she said I missed my, like most of my 20s and my 30s because I was over in Asia running around. So, uh, so we get to see all this old stuff. Oh, I'm, so, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, well, you missed it, buddy. <laughs> so, so I missed working through some of the parts of my relationship with my mother that weren't worked through. But I had done a lot of practice. And so when I came back, and I was back and forth, but I, I came back, and, and I wanted to work stuff through with her. So I'd go, and I'd meet with her, and she was open. And she was actually super supportive. Like she was the first one that said, go be a monk. You're doing it for all of us. Like you're, you're holding something bigger when you do this work. It was, it was a very beautiful energy to receive. And so I'd go there and we'd try to work through stuff. She had her guilt. I had my anger and frustration and just bewilderment, sadness, right? And uh, so we'd do this. And it wasn't all the time, but it'd be every couple of weeks I'd go and we'd, we'd check it out and we'd, we'd work and... And I started doing a practice where when it was really rough, I would 
exit myself. And I would go take some breaths and do a little walking, mindful walking. And then I'd come back in. And uh, one time, it was going okay, you know? And we have a good, very good relationship. Uh, good relationship, that's, yeah, realistic. <laughs> So one time we're sitting there, we're actually standing, I remember out in the field where she lives, and she said, uh, we're doing it and it's getting a little heated, and she says, Matthew, I'm Matt to you guys, but I'm Matthew to my mom for some reason. She said, Matthew, why don't you go do that breathing thing? It always works better when you come back. So I did. And I wouldn't have done that. So I wouldn't have taken care of myself. That's what I was doing, right? I was turning to my anchor. I was turning to my place where I could get a little space, a little refuge. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't care so much about the relationship. So caring for other moves us back in caring for ourselves. And it's very powerful in the actual teachings of the, the classical teachings of, of the Buddha that this movement outward, this caring for others, and in the form of generosity, it can be generosity of attention, it can be generosity of things, that this actually provides a foundation for the inner work. So when I went to Asia and ordained, they don't talk about, usually you talk about three steps, like we took the precepts, the refuge and precepts, and it was sila, which means ethics, samadhi, which is concentration, including mindfulness, and wisdom, right, seeing clearly. Sila, samadhi, panya. It's the classical way. But they had an, another word on the beginning. It's called dana, which is generosity, which was very beautiful because it means that when we care for others and we honor that through actually acts of, of giving, and that can be very different for different people, that that provides the foundation for us to do the inner work. And even holding practice in a bigger way, like a bigger commitment for others, often touches an energy where we become more devoted to our own awakening as well. Because we see that when we care for others, if we care for others, and this is very different than burnout when we talk about being in the world. <laughs> often we come here because we've been, we come on retreat because we've cared for others and we get a little burned out. But that's different. That can be codependent. There's a lot of ways that can manifest. So this is the quality of care and patience and kindness. And then it loops back on taking care of ourselves. So the, the openness of heart, the spirit, is quite powerful and wonderful. Just one, one quote that I like from this. May I be a protector of abandoned beings, a guide for those who tread the path. This is from Shantideva, a famous Tibetan text. For those who wish to cross, may I be a boat, the road, the bridge. May I be a lamp for those who need a lamp, a plant that heals, a wish-fulfilling tree. In other words, may I open my heart so fully, so openly, that there's no boundaries the willingness to care. And then when, you, when that resonates with you, that openness, does that lead back to touching our heart and taking care of the moment? 
So in taking care of others, we take care of self. And that's, it can be a powerful loop. Okay? But of course, it's natural just to take care of ourselves and have the ripple effects. And so, in the end, the two come together. This energy of taking care of oneself mindfulness matures into wisdom. The quality of kindness, care, patience, etc. Taking care of others, whether they be inner or outer, matures into compassion. The flavor of compassion is an energy that does not abandon the moment. It's an uprightness. It's a willingness to be with, to stay with, not to turn away from. The consequences, and actually when we don't abandon, what it's asking us to do, and this is, so this is for me, this is why it's a beautiful metaphor for the path, this whole thing, is that we don't abandon the moment. Because what is the moment made up of? It's always made up of self, like the metaphor of self as awareness, and other. It's always relational, in other words. And there's always something in it. It's always inner or outer. And the Buddha said, contemplate internally and externally in a way. But it's what's in the moment. And when we attend to the moment fully, well, where else can we wake up? Where else can our heart of compassion, wisdom, where else can it be? Where else can it flower? So it's said in the end, it said that in the path of the teachings, there's compassion and wisdom, and they're like two birds of this bird of Dharma, of the path. And that both of them need to be strong and coordinated for the bird to fly. And that's our practice. Our practice is so deeply, with all these skills we have, and just the actual fact that awareness is arising naturally, it's here. that the moment is where it all unfolds. So caring for self, caring for other, caring for other, caring for self, it's just caring for the moment. Doesn't that make it simple? Isn't that we're finding in a certain way all these tools are just learning to care for the moment with mindfulness, with love, with patience, care? So it's very simple. So end with this um, from 
the teacher Dogen from the Zen tradition. He says that awakening is intimacy with life. Delusion and intimacy when life touches us deeply. Delusion is us imposing ourselves on life. And when we don't impose ourselves and we're intimate, it touches a clear quality of intelligence that can be still or can respond depending on the needs of the moment. So please trust in this moment. Turn our hearts towards it. Because there's tremendous significance in how we meet this moment, every moment. So let's sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.